Is immediate success possible while still making longer-term plans? In episode 28 of Kill Histories, we hear from a manager who is well-placed to assess such a philosophy. In 2012, Kenny Shields guided Kilmarnock Football Club to only its fifth piece of silverware. However, not one to rest on past glories, the development of the next generation of Kelly players was at the forefront of his thoughts. I'm Gordon Gillen, and this is 2022 Hall of Fame inductee, Kenny Shields. On behalf of all Kilmarnock supporters, congratulations for your induction into the Hall of Fame. Is that something that came out of the blue, so to speak? Yeah, it did. Uh, I wasn't expecting that. The way I left the club, which was a little bit unceremonious, but when I reflect on it and went over to the club to receive the award, there were so many people that were um, supportive of me, I felt, you know, outside of the club, obviously, supporters and people who were there and I felt really good about being there and being back at Rugby Park to meet up with my a lot of uh, relationships that I've built, built up over the years and it was fantastic for me to be honest and uh, you know, I'm forever indebted to them to become part of the Kilmarnock folklore and, and history of the club. It made me feel very good and still does. The clubs I've managed in Northern Ireland, I go back there and I'm made welcome because we've had success. My 13th trophy was Kilmarnock as a manager. I remember it well. My 14th was Derry City. You know, I have so many friends in football from various clubs and Kilmarnock is right up there as one of them. And when you go to the places that you used to manage, you feel a great uh, connection. Like when I went to Kilmarnock uh, a month ago or less now, three weeks, I felt so connected with the people. And it was great because they were up, you know, shaking my hand. And, and that friendship is something that you just don't write it down and give it to someone. You, you've got an emotional attachment there. And I was really um, proud to have received the induction and looking at names like Gary Hay and, and people that played for me and Alan Robertson, you know, to be up in that wall with them has, has been tremendous feeling for me. When you go to these games, it's great to meet up with people and uh, from the groundsman to the, you know, the people that was there before, it, it's fantastic to reconnect with that, the girls in, in the, in the club shop as well. And, you know, it was, was certainly a lovely feeling for me. A little bit of background, please, Ken, if you don't mind, on the route into coaching. And this is maybe to add a little bit of extra information for Kilmarnock fans who might know you as having come from the Tranmere Youth Academy into the Kilmarnock role, but maybe don't know that little bit about the background. Your father ran a team in your hometown, in the local area. What influence did he have on your route after playing and during playing into the management side? 
Well, he had a huge impact on my football life. My mother told me when she was alive that she always remembers that when I was two, I had to ha go into hospital for a hernia operation. Now, not a massive operation, but it's an operation. My mother said she lifted the bags and left me in the hospital and took away the football. And I went berserk. I couldn't, apparently, I don't remember it, but she says I went berserk because I couldn't get my football and they had to come back. And my mother gave me the ball and <laughs> I lay down on the pillow and felt at peace with myself. And, and, you know, I didn't know what an operation was in those days at two years of age. But that just epitomized, you know, the way you sometimes, the greatest relationship you can have with anybody is your relationship with yourself. And I've always held that to me. And the fact that I was so possessive of the ball, that's was sort of mapped out internally for me coming from within. And uh, my father was football mad and he uh, had a major impact also on myself. But I, we, we lived in a, a little farm about a mile outside a local town and I just played football from morning to night. It's all I did. And it was brilliant for me to become decent at it, let's say. And in fact, a lot of people said I was very, very good. And I went to play for Coleraine just after my 15th birthday. And it was great. And a club that size, I remember 1971 when we played Kilmarnock. And it was great to see my friend there at the dinner when it was over a couple of weeks ago, who scored the goal in the one-all draw, Ross Matthew. Because Ross and I would meet, because I took over the Northern Ireland under-17s, and Ross at that time was the manager of Scotland's under-17s. And uh, we developed an off-the-field relationship, phoning each other and things like that. So it was great to see him there as well. But I never got talking to him. There was that many people at it. But backtracking now, I feel that when you're brought up in something, should it be in any walk of life, part of you is reticent to going that way and having it forced into you, but there's a higher percentage who follow in their father's footsteps in terms of that pathway where in, in those days there was very little else, only uh, football for me. And there wasn't as many distractions I lived in the country, but I became obsessed with playing football and I had to do it and there was nothing else for me. And it's probably still, it's very, very much still there, that obsession with the game and to meet people. It was a great conveyor belt for me to become friends with so many people over the years. And I don't want to lose that. I, want, I don't want to lose that. I want to keep managing and coaching for as long as I can until I'm not able to do it. I always always wanted to play. That was always the foremost uh, passion of mine was to play football. And I got a really bad injury in my ankle, which has still given me a lot of problems to this day. And then it turns into arthritis and so forth. But I'm fit and able to train, like I trained this morning again, to keep myself in condition so that 
I'm mentally and physically ready to go in to if something else comes up after I'm finished with the girls, who knows how long I will be with the girls. I have a contract to the end of 23. Five times I've applied for the Kilmarnock job and in the last 11 years, they've hired uh, 12 managers. Um, I was jotting it all down this morning since um, what's his name left the, to go to Hibs, not to Hearts, sorry, Jim Jeffries. And then you can read the rest off from there. In 2010, Mix who came in. Then there was myself, Andy Millen, Alex Dyer. It comes to 13 anyway. Uh, Gary Locke, Lee McCulloch. Used to be if your name was Lee, you got the job. And then <laughs> I don't want to become someone who's waiting for someone to fail. Do you know what I mean? I've always, I don't think I've ever not accepted a job because it got me right back into football. And I got a lot of success by doing that because I was always never taking a break. I hear managers saying, oh, I can't wait to get a break at the end of the season. But I don't, I have never had that emotion or that feeling. I just wanted to keep involved in football. The men's football finishes very shortly now. And I'm looking, there's a void there for me in terms of being able to follow the teams and relate to them. And um, I, I just love my football and I want to keep involved and work to for the association now and prepare for the next part, which is the, the finals of the Euros. It's clear, and it was clear in pretty much every interview or any interview I've heard during your time at Kilmarnock, that that love of football Beyond everything else, the love of the game and, and from your family background, it's very clear that where that's come from. As a player in the dressing room, what kind of character were you? I was uh, very vocal, very demanding of, of anyone I ever played with. I hated to see someone treat the game with total uh, negligence and care for the game. I've always wanted to play alongside players who wanted to do well and wanted to have success and had a will to win. So I was very, very uh, vocal and as a player where I was loud in the dressing room, I can definitely reflect on that. And not only when, when I got a little bit older, I didn't want to win. I wanted to win in a special way. And when I look at Celtic and Rangers uh, domination in Scotland, Sir Alex took them on, but he took them on when it was not, it wasn't a global market. It was mostly all Scottish when Sir Alex took them on. So during my era, the diversity and, and the amount of different people that's come in from Europe and Africa and all over the world to play in England and Scotland, the challenge becomes greater then. And I thrived in, on that. But you see, if people don't have a passion to win, um, I, I don't have that connection with them because they're, they're different animals than what I am. But certainly in my time at Kilmarnock, uh, going back to that, I felt as if I had that characteristic that would make players think about themselves and think about the team and try to work harder to get results. But when I look at the old firm now, more so the last seven or eight years, and even back then, but when I watch it on TV, the Scottish League, Premier League, 
nobody wants to have a go at the old firm. You want to say nobody, that's unfair because Alexa of Livingston give it a blast and not, not, not everybody, but I would like managers to come in and try to play the game the right way first. And obviously managers will say it's all about winning. It's not all about winning. It's all about improving and trying to get the players to play in a way in which they felt good about the game itself. Because you can't just have one segment of the sport. You've got to have the love of the game as well. And, you know, if we go and win a match where we go percentage and, and we try to fight off long balls and it's so horrible to watch, you're depriving the supporters of entertainment. Because people forget that football is an, enter, an entertainment environment. They pay money, they buy a season ticket, they go and watch it, and it's dire. But they're in the top six, but it's still dire. Do you know what I mean? My loyalty lies to the ship of the game. And I'm sure I've proved that at Kilmarnock, that how we played was significant to how I wanted us to play. And my teams today are the same. You know, if you look back during that period of about 14 months, we won away to Celtic twice in Glasgow. We won 2-0 and 1-0. And we didn't concede. We won away to Rangers and we won at home to Rangers in that period. So that was two more clean sheets. We won away to Aberdeen. 2-0 during that period. We won away twice to Hearts during that period. You know, both to nil. So when I was writing it down yesterday and thinking about it, and I says, well, I'm going to tell this, this explain to them that the organisation of that sounds like as if we were defensive. But we played with the ball and we pushed people high up the pitch. We opened up the spaces. And you've seen that in, in our performances and this was away from home. Every single, well, most of those matches there were away from home. But when we were at home, everybody wanted Michael out. So the atmosphere of the arena, an 18,000-seater stadium with 4,000 in it, and half of them are shouting to get Michael out, it didn't lend itself to a positive environment. And I regret that, and I couldn't say it at the time. But that's one of the things I regretted the most, that if we could have got, I'm not saying the supporters didn't support us, but there was still that feeling from them that this has to be changed. And where our home form was not good. It wasn't good in my last season, and I accept that. But with the best away form out of the old firm. And the pleasure that Kelly people got from that was coming back from Abrox having won, coming back from Parkhead having won, coming back from Hamden, having won twice. The feeling that, that I was aware that the emotion that that was driving through the town and, you know, I felt as if I'd made a contribution to that and I, and I wanted to do it more. And I'd love to have gone back to Kilmarnock. And I still harbour that, that feeling that I want to go back there. And now they've got Derek, and which hopefully will move Kilmarnock on. And, you know, what we've done was tremendous, tremendous. I hadn't fully twigged in terms of the clean sheets. Yes. Away from home. 
it's something I hadn't put two and two together and thought, of course, yeah, that's... What provoked me, Gordon, to bring that up was that I was reading it on Facebook that some guy chirped in, anybody could win the Wheel League Cup. He just was a lucky manager. But you can't be a lucky manager if you can organise a team that knows how to play with attacking football and also have a solid base and foundation to not concede. Like to go to Rangers at Ibrox and dominate the ball. We tried to dominate the ball first and foremost, and we achieved that. We achieved it. Like we scored a goal against Hearts from our goalkeeper. Everybody in the team touched the ball, but it was never highlighted. If it had been Rangers or Celtic done it, it would have been very much highlighted. One of the most fantastic goals that I I seen in the in the Scottish Prem. And you know, it's what you manufacture and and how you apply yourself is is very important as well. Kenny Shields' Kilmarnock story started in 2010. New manager Mick Supasalainen was looking for an assistant. Kenny used to come to our training sessions quite often uh, at Hips, Hips training club when I was a manager of Hips because um, Dean, his son, played for me at Hips. So he used to, he used to come, um, uh, what's our training there? Um, he was the head of youth at the time with Tranmere Rovers because he came to the training ground. We spoke, we spoke about Dino. We spoke about the football in general. I went to England to scout players regularly, almost every week. And whenever I went uh, close to Liverpool or that sort of area, I said uh, to Kenny that fancy coming to the game and we, we would go for a coffee and talk and stuff like that. So we kind of uh, got to know each other. Before that, I hadn't met Kenny at all. And then I realized that we, we shared very similar idea how to go about, how to, how to play. And then when I ended up coming to Kelly, I thought that uh, Kenny would be ideal. My assistant, the assistant manager, Donald Park, had moved to SFA, the coach education. He was there and he was happy there. I had to get a new assistant manager. And I thought, that, uh, why not Kenny? Thankfully, Tranmere Rovers uh, were positive about that idea and, and he ended up um, joining us. We had a fantastic working relationship. He's an intelligent man and, and, and a really good guy. It was great to work with. You've set things up very nicely in terms of you talking about your philosophy and this philosophy of being entertainment first, enjoyment, as opposed to a focus purely on results. The relationship with Miksu Patalainen, first and foremost, what were you expecting when Miksu approached you? What were you expecting from a Miksu Patalainen Kilmarnock team? Well, I was when I went with Miksu in 2010, I had an operation on my knee for another football whirlwind and uh, I was on crutches and it was so laughable. I'd come in to help Mixu and I'm setting up sessions for him and I'm running about with crutches and setting the markers down. And (laughs) it was when I think back, but it sort of helped me settle in and people had a little bit of empathy with me because I wouldn't give up. I I tried to help Mixu. I protected him from everything the way I would like to have been protected when I managed, where you need someone who's trustworthy and will feed back to Mixu the emotions and the feelings of the team. And I, I did all of that for Mixu, and it was a joy to work with Mixu because he had a similar philosophy to myself where he, he wanted to play a possession-based game and you know, we got on like a house on fire. I 
was really proud to be working with him. Mixie was only there from August to March, you know, which isn't a long time. And you can't blame him for wanting to manage his own country, which was a great opportunity for him. But, you know, I was hoping I would be offered the job. And Michael Johnson, I, I applaud him for taking a chance with me. But it wasn't really a chance if you looked at my CV because of one trophies most places I've been. Mixu, we always had good frank discussions in the room, you know, about how we wanted to play. And, you know, we, he was really, really good to work with. How did you adjust to that role of the assistant, having been that successful manager for some 15 years previously? Yeah, well, being a manager, being a manager for so long meant I knew exactly the needs of a manager. Totally. I, I knew what the needs would be and what the support mechanisms would be, it would be looking for. I knew all of that. And one thing is 100% that you need to have a trusted lieutenant, pardon the pun, but someone you could trust. And I had to uh, bestow that to make sure that he could trust me. If there was somebody that was negative to what he was trying to do, he knew about it. He knew about it through me. And you have to have, you have to bring out your own personality, I feel. And how you deliver that. It's important to help and support your manager. When Mixu Pasalainen accepted the irresistible offer of managing Finland's national team, Kenny Shields was soon appointed as his replacement, initially on an interim basis. You hoped that you would be offered the job, you were offered the job, but this is another question about adjustment. So now we've got the idea of you were an experienced manager, so you weren't an assistant. That idea of sometimes clubs will try an untested assistant into the manager, the managerial role, but you were this experienced, successful manager. Yeah. But did you notice, was there any change in dynamic with the players? What did you have to do then to now be the manager as opposed to the assistant manager? Well, I took over with eight games left. And... Um... We had Celtic and Rangers and all the top teams to play. It was such a difficult run in. We lost four and drew four. So I didn't get a one in eight games towards the end of that season. And that's where I'm grateful to Michael Johnson for giving me the opportunity because I don't know if he was sure because my wife and I were going on holiday in the middle of June or maybe the first week in June, whatever it was. And I didn't want to go on holiday and ruin her holiday if I didn't know if I was going to be appointed. So I went to meet Michael and said to him, look, Michael, I, uh, I, I need to know because I can't go on, on, on my holidays and not know. And he says, OK, you're getting the job. And that was a big move for him because I hadn't managerial experience in Scotland, but I had as an assistant with Mixu. But he trusted me and that was good. But you asked the question how I did with the changes of moving from uh, assistant manager to manager. Well, I'm already in the environment. I knew the players so well and 
and knew the weaknesses and strengths of what we had, which was a big plus, rather than a stranger, stranger coming in and saying, showing them 12 managers in 10 years or 11 years is testament to how things have been going where they bring in a manager, let him go, bring in a manager, let him go. You know, it was just like going on and on and on. Steve Clark's the only one that, of them all who left to go for to manage his country, which you can't blame him for having that desire. So there was only one, there wasn't one manager they kept on, you know, they kept changing and changing and changing. And uh, because I knew that my situation was a perfect example of doing it the right way, where we've got a guy here who knows the players, he knows where we need strengthening, he knows everything about the squad and the team. And uh, he's got a philosophy that lends itself to entertainment and, and wanting the team to play well and a good philosophy in football. So I was on their doorstep and they took me in and I started work then immediately. What were your realistic hopes for the role? You know, it resembled, I took over a team in, in Northern Ireland they were bottom of the league, Carrick Rangers, they were called. And I worked my socks off to be well. It was my first job in, in Irish League football uh, way back in 89, around that time. And I worked my tail off, but there was no relegation at that time. They had four points in February. And I won a couple and lost four or something. But it was similar to what I was. I took over towards the end of the season, just replicating what happened at Kilmarnock. And I worked on high possession, high intensity, love the ball, do all of that stuff. And we did that incessantly. The training was really prepared. And, and I am talking about the Carrick Rangers job now. And, the next year, we won the trophy. The County Atmosphere would beat Dan Torn in final after a replay. It was like Kilmarnock against Celtic. It was that vast difference between the two clubs as clubs. And that's exactly what we did with Kilmarnock. The exact same, practically. And uh, it sort of hit me that I just revisited this again. And then with the women's now... They've done nothing and we've moved along and like a, a, a lorry in top gear right through and getting better and better and better. And, you know, the, the repetition of that was so good. And to do it with Kilmarnock was, was fantastic. And, you know, the players knew me. They knew I was honest and straight and there was no back doors in me, as we would say over here. And uh, we got stuck into it and... I managed them in a way in which I hope and I feel that I got the best out of them. And certainly that's borne fruit with us. What changes in team setup? Because obviously several players left, several key players left either yeah. towards the end of the season or into the pre-season. You would have had a blueprint, a tactical blueprint, but how adjustable would that be depending on the recruitment that you were able to put together? Well, the players that left were the ones that was coming out of contract. And because we'd done really well, they were moving, you know, 
to pastures new and getting more money and their contract was up. So you can't blame them, you know, for that. And uh, I brought in my new players and we um, moved up, I feel, in terms of what we were, having lost those players. We brought in players, Paul Heffernan uh, and my own son, Dean Shales. You know, we brought in players of good calibre for, you know, a, a wage that was suitable for Kilmarnock as well. So I knew what my budget was and I worked really hard in bringing in players and we achieved that where we had a stable team and they fitted into my way of playing. And, you know, you never get it 100% right, but I felt we got it pretty much spot on in terms of uh, developmentalizing that team into the next season and how everybody, where they sat with it, the likes of the players who have been around the club a long time, Gary Hay and James Fowler. It's good for us to have that foundation, Cammy Bell. That was brilliant. An unheralded signing in Paul Heffernan provided the marksmanship that might have been lacking in a team which had just suffered the loss of the creativity of Alexei Eremenko and the goals of Conor Salmon. I think it's fair to say that he was a bit of a an unexpected success with Kilmarnock fans. But you would have known when you were bringing him in exactly what you were getting. I guess you must have thought, great, to be able to get that quality of player. Yeah, I felt good about getting half signed because he suited, we, we play, he's a five foot nine, five foot eight striker who comes off the opposition and he slides under these pockets. And I could see it in his game. He would touch the ball four or five times in about 12 minutes. But their effective touches and awareness of space was really, really good and a natural finisher. So when we went to Hearts and he got his hat trick there, it was fantastic to see it coming through. But it was an extension of what we had. And I had to bring in the right type of player as well. And uh, I was very, very much into developing the youth team. And I worked with Alan Robertson and bringing that on. Matthew Kennedy, uh, Rory, who's still playing. Rory McKenzie, I give him his professional contract. Matthew Kennedy, I give him his professional contract. Greg Kelty, I give him his professional contract. And I was betting well for the future. I hope I'm not digressing here. But what I said to Michael at the end of January in my last season, I says, Michael, I'm going to let a few people go because some of them are wanting to go and I'm going to replace them with youth team players. So we didn't make the top six and I should have thought of myself more, but I thought more about the longevity of the future, the team, so that we could build and develop players. So we let Michael go. It was a big loss to us, our centre-back, Michael Nelson. You know, we, we four or five went in a way and I replaced them with youth players. I remember doing it. And we beat Dundee United in our first match after the January window. So I didn't invest in the January window. I told them I was doing it for next season. I says, be prepared for us not making the top six. But then there was a clause in my contract but not been in the top eight. So it meant they could trigger that, which they did. But 
I'd already made the deal with Michael that I was going to go for youth and build the, build a youth policy that's producing players and saving the club money in the long term. And there's nothing better than seeing one of your own who'd come through the system. And uh, I was disappointed in that. That's what hurt more than anything because it meant that there was the next guy coming in would be about first team, first team, first team. But I developed every club I've been at, I've developed a youth system and working in close hand with my youth team manager. And that was a good thing. Alan was a great lad, Alan Robertson, to work alongside in that, to build that up. I think the football people would understand. You get supporters at every club. They want to get results every day. You know, right now, here and now. But we'd won a cup in the back of that. And we were still playing good football away from home, really good. But the home matches were a bit different, to be honest. But I was working on that for the next season and I was wanting to get young local players in the team where it would lift the crowd and they would forget about all the other stuff that was going on. That was my thoughts on it. There's a character, a celebrated player for Kilmarnock, but a character that maybe intrigues people ever so slightly, Alexei Eremenko, in terms of your man management style being that person who players could come to and, and that you would be involved quite closely with. What did he need on the man management side? He need to be given freedom. Those type of players that has got a sixth sense on the football pitch, which he had when he played for us, definitely some fantastic performances. And Alexei had that. And you have to manage him in a way in which you get the best out of him. And the same as every player, because there's two types in the football team and you've got to manage it well. You've got artists and you've got soldiers. If you have a team full of soldiers, like I've seen in this last 10 years at Kilmarnock, then it might function now and again. It won't be pretty. So it's probably crying out for two or three artists in the team. And he was our artist. Artists, and, and I'm not saying this about Alexei, but in general, players who I would call artists are ego-led. And players who are for the team are task-led. So Alexei was an ego-led player, but you need that. Those types, you have to just say, go out and do it. Or there might be some information you would say to them, like, dropping into spaces and be aware of the movement of our players. But they know that. They've got a sixth sense. And he's one of those players. And I've managed a few of them. And then you've got, alongside them, you've got players who can stop the opposition from playing. So it gave us a good balance. But don't forget, I didn't have Alexa when we won the Cup and we came through. So Dean was our Alexa in terms of working at the top of midfield with and game intelligence and knowing when to stay on it, knowing when to move it. So we, we had to replace them in some capacity so that we have a balance in the team where we've got, you know, if you have a team full of soldiers, you're not going to be able to put on a show in terms of entertaining your fans. And when we had Alexa, he was a fantastic footballer, to be honest. He really was. 
What was it that was different in season 2011, 2012 and 2012-2013, your two years in the manager's role, compared to the season before? Because the team that you and Mixu put together played some fantastic football, but didn't quite get the results against Rangers and Celtic. Can you put your finger on what was different ever so slightly? I don't know. I, I can't get uh, a correlation there because it happens in football. But I felt that people overlooked the fact that my teams played fantastic football. We, we were knocking it about and playing football to an extent where you know, we'd lost Alexa, we'd lost so many players, and it was like restarting again. And we put it under the restart mode, and I thought our football was fantastic. Really, really was. Uh, at home, it wasn't anywhere near what it should have been. But we were bringing young players through, and it's like chalk and cheese. You can't really say that there was a difference in certain aspects of it was good for Mixu and us that we were starting from the doldrums. So moving from the doldrums to very good is easier than moving from very good to very, very good. You know, there's a distinct difference in there. But I felt that when we moved the ball the way we did, if you look at the, the games against Celtic, we deprived them of the ball. We played two on the high part of the pitch and they couldn't cope at times. We beat Celtic 2-0 at Parkhead. And I remember well, a guy put it to me, in 2006, 1996, sorry, till 2010 or 11, when we beat Rangers 1-0 at home, it was something like 13 years we had, hadn't won at home. And we beat Rangers at home and we deprived them of the ball. And then we uh, beat Celtic away and we kept the ball really well at Parkhead. Don't forget, I give, uh, and that, that was my source, which I was trying to do. I give a 17-year-old his debut at Parkhead away to Celtic, O'Hara, and he went in it right back and done magnificent. We took him out of his normal position. So we put the square pegs in the square holes and we went and beat Celtic 2-0, which was unreal and hadn't been done in 55 years at that time. It's now well over 60 since we've beaten Celtic at Parkhead, apart from that. So there was continuity in what we did, but there was also a fantastic way of playing. And some of the managers said to me, that's unbelievable. And what happened was... Other clubs from provincial towns that weren't Celtic or Rangers started to do, Stuart McCall was starting to work on that type of football. And we brought that brand, which I felt was fantastic to watch and give us the success that we had. It certainly helped us win the cup, without a doubt. The defining match of Kenny Shields' Kilmarnock tenure was the 2012 League Cup final. Having matched favourite Celtic for over 70 minutes, brave, confident and imaginative decision-making was at the heart of the success, made possible by Dieter van Tornhout's late winner. I watched an interview where you talked about the psychology of an attacking substitution when it maybe wasn't expected, kind of 70 mm -hmm. minutes into a game where you are not the favourites to win, in a cup final where you're not the favourites. 
how did you set the team up to get yourself into that position where you might have that option? I can remember my talk with the players. We'll go to Hamden and we'll deprive them of the ball, which we tried to do. So the stats were very, very marginal who had the most of the ball, but they weren't used to that. And in the first couple of minutes, Big Dudu made a mistake where he passed it along the 18-yard line and Hooper had a free goal running and Cammy saved it. But that was the start of my encouragement to them was keep building it through the units because what happens is subconsciously teams are going to Celtic and playing in the cup final like that. They would like the ball in the other half of the pitch what they didn't know about the game that we were playing is our methodology was to keep the ball to open up spaces in their half of the pitch rather than hump the ball up the pitch and defend the next part. So we kept it through the units. If you remember the goal, we scored. My left back was involved in the build-up high up the pitch and John o, Lee Johnson was a deep midfielder who'd come on a sub and he crossed the ball. His instructions was to get high. If he can, don't be afraid to go high. And uh, Fowler could come in from right back and Gary could come in and lock in there and give him security. So Jono went forward a sub and he crossed it for the other sub that come on and he scored. But it was, if you could put it into a picture and a screen, where if you kick the ball up the pitch and then defend the next bit, it's, it's not a logical way of playing. But people are so afraid of the old firm. And their two centre-backs were not used in Scottish football to play against two. Because he now had Heffernan and Dieter van Tornout. They, now had, they were now matched up. So we put them into an uncomfortable position. And it worked. It worked because before the game, I spoke to the players about if we do get, if we can stay inside the game and we bring on an extra striker in the last 20 minutes, lo and behold, that actually happened. And we brought him on in 72 or 73. He scored in 83. And the players were like, everything just worked into place for us. Sometimes in management, you get it right like that. But that certainly was when you're, Two subs are on the pitch, one crosses the other scores. It tells you something. Let's say, and this is all ifs, buts, and maybes, but I'm really interested in that tactical side and the planning side. Let's say that that goal hadn't happened. How would you have envisaged the rest of the game panning out and into extra time? Or was it, this is a moment when you roll the dice, what are the different things that you're looking at that might or might not happen? Well, there's three moments, there's three differentials in a game. There's what you do when you're winning, what to do when you're losing, and what to do when you're drawing. So going into the later stages and the latter stages of the cup final, we had to prepare for that. And you could see it was done like clockwork and everything was falling into place for us. And now we were 1-0 up with eight minutes to go, seven minutes to go, and we drop off the game to close the spaces to start playing like how the other teams play against the old firm. 
it was only an eight-minute match. It fell into place for us. But you're talking about planning. You can plan as a manager, but you have to plan for every eventuality. If we're outside the game and we're 2-0 down and you throw players up the pitch, you're in a no-one situation. You know, you're already behind. They've got their confidence up. But they couldn't believe because this was the first team in my era, anyway. It's the first time I've seen a team take the game to Celtic at Park or at Hampden Park. It was incredible. Dean could have had a hat trick. He was good on the day. He was hurting them, but his finishing wasn't as good as it normally is. And um, I was so proud that we won the match. And then what happened, Liam's Fowler and all that was like, it was difficult for everybody to take. But when you reflect on it now, it was a fantastic achievement. What do you think Kilmarnock fans think when they hear the name Kenny Shields? Right. Do you know what annoys me? And I'm not being critical of the fans, but when it did come over to the dinner, the dinner and the, and the celebration a few weeks ago, they sang uh, Kenny Shields, he says what he wants. And to me, that's not how I want to be remembered. Do you know what I mean? I want to be remembered for the football that we, we give them and the style of play and the model, the game model that we had, I want them to feel proud of that, that they had that. And uh, it means so much to me that I'm remembered for how I set my teams up tactically and technically, how we, how we went about trying to entertain the fans. I want you to think of me as someone who was helping to develop young local players. All of that are parts of me, you know, and I haven't got into trouble with referees. Apart from those two times uh, when the St. Johnson match and the Inverness match, the rest was all about fighting the Scottish FA and, and disagreeing with them. You can't do that. So I am now, I want to come back to Scotland after I'm finished with Northern Ireland, I would love to come back and manage and um, where I'm bereft. Like I felt that the media um, manipulated me and I also did said things wrong as well, but I don't do that anymore. Do you know what I mean? I don't get involved in any of that refereeing thing. And I never did before I came to Scotland, maybe once, and that was a bit it. So I feel a wee bit um, pigeonholed, you know, where I'm just a mouthpiece or I tried to fight the corner because I had so much in my life as a football manager where I was able to witness and protect the provincial teams who don't, I felt they didn't get decisions right against us and it favoured the old firm and all that stuff. Rightly or wrongly, I should have kept my mouth shut rather than try and fight the cause for my supporters and my club. So I've learned from that now and it's a clean slate for me. But I don't want to be judged in that. Do you know what I mean? That would be my message. I would hate to be judged on what I said rather than what i done.
Thank you to Kenny Shields for such a detailed and insightful account of his time with Kilmarnock Football Club. This episode of Killy Histories was recorded in May 2022 by video call. Killy Histories is a not-for-profit project made for the Kilmarnock FC Former Players Association. Find out more at www.killyhistories.com Don't forget to follow on Twitter and Facebook at Killy Histories and leave a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. For a third season, huge thanks to the Killy Trust for their sponsorship, covering all production costs. To find out more about the Trust and its relationship with Kilmarnock FC, visit www.thekillytrust.com The theme music Clear Progress by scottholmesmusic.com is used under free Creative Commons licence. I'm Gordon Gillen. See you next time.